Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Joshua Faust, and we're discussing video games. So he is uh, the author of, of Video Games are the New cons tested space for public policy and the co-author on a guide to reigning in data-driven video game design. So we thought this conversation would be important because part of this kind of stems out of my personal kind of experience with video games. I got back into gaming at the end of 2019 and then it just really took a hard turn during quarantine. So I started with uh, a game like Death Stranding because the narrative elements were really cool. And then as quarantine hit, I got into Dark Souls, Neo 2, and stuff like that. As with all things, my, my analytic policy brain never shuts off. And I said, what are the kind of implications between behind video games? The, the cultural and the artistic narratives are, are, are obvious. Like there's been a lot of conversation about Hideo Kojima, for instance, but what are the deeper policy issues? If I, you know, sitting in front of a video game for four or five hours at a time, you know, how do we conceptualize that in data collection, monetization, and even, you know, within the attention economy? So today, my guest is going to help me examine that. Please welcome Joshua Faust. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I want to start off with kind of a very simple question, which is, how do we define video games as a medium to study? Because I think, I think for a lot of us, when you say video games, immediately the AAA games pop into our head. It's like, oh, these are EA. This is uh, Hideo Kojima's latest thing. But you know, as as I work through some of your papers, it actually is much more diverse than I had the first cut. So walk us through what is, you know, how do we look at video games as a, a medium to study? Well, and, you know, Death Stranding is a pretty interesting entree into that question because that is not a traditional video game. It's people have described it as kind of a walking simulator, or I've heard other people describe it as like an empathy simulator almost, since the whole purpose of it is approaching people who have been hiding inside for too long after calamities struck their society and trying to get them to build connections with each other again. And you do that by basically walking from house to house or city to city delivering things. So yeah, like it, 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 I'm, I'm glad you brought up Death Stranding because I think that also enters into this a lot in terms of how we think about things and how we can envision it. I think at the most basic level, a video game is just, it, it is a game. So it, it, it's like any other kind of game that you would think of that's played electronically by manipulating images produced by some piece of software on a screen. People slice and dice those a lot more narrowly, which is what you were getting into with the, uh, the AAA consideration is usually a game with a really, really big budget that's considered to have more or less a permanent revenue stream attached to it or very, very high levels of production. There are also indie games, which just like indie music are produced by developers outside of the kind of traditional publishing industry. Uh, there are mobile games, which is actually the largest category of gaming. And there are all kinds of different genres that go underneath that. But at its basic level, I, I look at them as just a game that's played on a screen. It's kind of an expansive definition. 
but it lets us get at a lot of aspects around video gaming that, like you said, aren't normally captured in the kind of stereotypical, like, young man on a ratty couch in front of the TV image that people tend to associate video games with. That's interesting. So when you when you sit down and you start thinking about video games as a as an avenue to study as a, a field to study what do you what do you see as the value of studying video games is it like I, I mentioned before is it sort of a cultural mimetic sort of study or are you really kind of looking at the hard policy the the legal issues the economic issues and stuff like that yeah, so my 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 personal my my research interests are more toward the policy side of things, but they stem out of this belief. And I actually got this from a guy named Johan Huizinga. I'm not pronouncing his name correctly because he's Dutch and I can't pronounce Dutch words. But he wrote this book in the 1930s called Homo Ludens, which created this philosophical idea that gameplay and the idea of play and games are fundamental to essentially human civilization. And he made this, you know, he made this, this argument way before we even had really game. I think there were some game shows on the radio at the time. It wasn't really a huge genre. Didn't have TV game shows. People basically just had like board games and different kinds of contests that they would play with each other at the time. But his argument is that the element of play is fundamental to culture and society. And one of the arguments he makes in it is that through, through gameplay, humans start to develop the idea, the, the mental framework for how to understand a rules-based system. It's how people learn that cheating is bad. It's how people learn that you can simulate something with different stakes than doing it in real life, that you can use it as a way to create a sense of fun or a sense of frustration or a sense of beauty or a sense of sadness. And that the, the way that we relate to play and to being in a contest is ultimately a civilizing function. And that that's one of the things that he was making this argument before we knew a lot about, about animal cognition and how animals also like to play, but that that act of playing is really fundamental to the way that human society had organized itself. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is an airtight argument. It was very much a product of its time. I hate that phrase, but I think it applies here because there were things we just didn't know in the 30s that we do know a century later. But that idea of how important gameplay is to people is, is how I began approaching this. And actually, the, the initial entree to this was in a previous life that I had. You and I know each other going way back because I used to work in national security. And when I worked in national security, I actually did a surprising amount with video games. And it wasn't in a way that, that I would have expected. So there, there, was, there was one instance when I was a contractor at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and they wanted me to investigate how games like World of Warcraft and Second Life might be used as these secret back-channel communications for Al-Qaeda to fundraise or to talk or to plan attacks or whatever. We couldn't find any evidence that that was happening. But what I did find in that is that people were using games, especially things like Second Life, to simulate things that I really wouldn't consider to be part of a normal game. And that was something that stuck with me for a really, really long time. And several years later, when I wound up in Afghanistan, there, this was, gosh, 2009? I'm old. Okay, so this was 2009 in Afghanistan. People in, in I, I was embedded with the provincial reconstruction team. 
in this province called Kapisa province. I actually wrote a book about that experience. But the soldiers there would use first-person shooters to game plan out tactics and how they were going to plan, go either going through an area or how they would envision themselves, you know, kicking some Taliban ass or something like that. And the way that they were relating to the game, again, really was not how I would have thought that they would be relating to something like Call of Duty, which at that time was mostly World War II simulator. But they had repurposed it into this other thing, and they were using it to actually achieve things in real life that ultimately, because of the work I was doing at the time, which was which was doing counterinsurgency advising, ended up having some real-world consequences. So the way that they were using this game ended up having kind of life and death reality outside of the game. And just over the years, as, as that kind of marinated in my head and I began trying to think through it some more, it, it began to click through that because games are so widespread and, and very few people, I think, really like to grapple with how big video games are as an industry. By most measures, I mean, there's a little bit of, of leeway on this, but by most measures, the revenue generated by video games is larger than all of Hollywood and all of pop music combined. So there's a tremendous economic force behind this cultural artifact that most people tend to kind of either sneer at or ignore or think is just for kids or is irrelevant. But we attach tremendous importance to music, to television, to the written word, to newspapers, magazines, books, movies, all of these things, it's it's not hard to make the argument that those things, that those cultural artifacts can have an effect on people, that that they can inspire you know, new forms of empathy, that they can rile people up to behave irrationally or destructively, which we're seeing right now with the big media, the right-wing media campaign against vaccines. But people don't don't really seem to think of video games in this way. And Ultimately, because I've seen how they can have these, these real-world consequences, I think people need to start thinking of them as serious cultural artifacts that deserve to be studied because they have an effect on us. So I just want to kind of add what you said. Like, I can't think of a movie or a book that has something like Twitch attached to it. So <laughs> I know that sounds kind of funny, but like, like video games, like from my personal experience, like create a sense of community. And in that way, it kind of sets itself apart from a lot of movies, books, comic books that I kind of ingest. But in, in your so view, like... I would argue with that, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and, but this is very genre dependent, right? Like people, people don't form the, and, 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 and this is maybe getting it at a slightly bigger issue. I think video games, at least originally, going way back into like the 70s and 80s, were really tightly associated with geek culture, right? It's a subculture. We, we, we have a ton of kind of cultural memory of making fun of geeks. That's no longer the case now because geek culture has become so dominant. And I think through the use of that same geek culture, I mean, people freak out about comics and they have these, these very, very deep communities about comic books for sure. That has now moved into other genres. You actually made me think of those like two hour long review videos of the Star Wars trilogies that, uh, what are they called? Red Letter Media put out a number of years ago, long, like I think 10 years ago, that basically created the idea of the video essay as a review in critical format for things like movies and television shows. 
So people, and, and now uh, a bunch, like Twitch has started rolling this out. So it's Facebook, so it's Netflix even, where they have watch parties where people can do the kind of Twitch thing about movies because it works so well in video games. And it was really good at, at creating the idea of an influencer based on a media property instead of being based on like fashion or lifestyle or something else. You, you've seen those lines blurring a lot more. I agree with you that there's nothing quite like Twitch for say TV, but it's getting there. And I think it's because video games have done just overall as, as, a, as a class of, of media have done such an effective job of building this intense community of people who get extremely, I'm saying they're extremely passionate, that can be good and bad, of uh, the people who get extremely passionate about it. And there's this effort, and comic books, I think, are a good analogy to this of a non-interactive medium of people still getting this hardcore about it, or maybe like Star Trek. Same thing, you, 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 you talk to a Trekkie about what the show means to them or what the property means to them, and you'll get extremely strong opinions, most of them positive. And you just don't get that with kind of more traditional, quote unquote, types of media. But again, th those lines are, are really blurring together. And that blurring is also something very interesting that I think impacts the way that a lot of the discussion around video games could be unfolding. Is... It's kind of the key difference interactivity because it, it almost feels like if I were to sort of, you know, have a very, a video game that's very emotionally impactful with a book that's very emotionally impactful, I have like tend to remember the video game a lot better. And yeah. it, a lot of it has to do, at least from my experience, interactivity. So you know, in, in terms of setting video games apart from these other mediums, you know, it is the interactivity that makes the difference or is it, you know, what is that key difference? So the, the interactivity is absolutely a key difference from other kinds of media. That That's the big reason in, in academic circles why video games aren't always considered a traditional part of what they call mass media, which is normally how they think of transmitted like like a show being transmitted from one producer to millions of viewers. So the, the interactivity makes them different. I don't know that it makes them more persuasive though. And I say this in, in one of the pieces that, that you're linking to, I, I argue that video games are a persuasive medium. So they're, they're, they're stories, they're narrative constructs that have an argument, they express a worldview, they set up rules and then punish you if you don't obey those rules. So like that, that's, that's a persuasive element to, to what's going on. I don't know that they're more or less persuasive than any other form of media. What I would argue is that they should be treated as equally important to these other forms of media and not relegated to, again, just something that like teenage boys do because they don't have any other friends or any other anything else going for them or something condescending like that. That's not the case. Something like 35% of all video game players are over the age of 60. And, and they, they're not playing things like, like Modern Warfare or Battlefield. They're playing things like Candy Crush. And those are also persuasive games. They, they set up rules. They operate under a very, very narrow definition of capitalism and then train people to think of the game in those terms. And, and I, I, I don't know that they do a better job of persuading, but the interactive element definitely persuades people differently than just experiencing or watching a story. 
And, you know, this debate goes back more than a hundred years. There was, I don't know that she was officially a sociologist, but she worked at the, at the, at the sociology department in Chicago, at the University of Chicago in like 1904. This woman named Jane Adams, who wrote, she, she ran this like halfway house for immigrant and in, indi, indigent, very, very poor, like poverty ridden children. And she was there right when theater was, it, this, the culture was transitioning from theater as the dominant way of people experiencing performance into moving picture, like very, very early, early films. And something that she was remarking on is this is a brand new way for people to experience stories. What effect is this going to have on our ability to form communities? What effect is it going to have on our ability to interact with each other, to draw moral lessons from life, to understand the obligation that people need to have to each other in order to exist in a society together? And the questions that she was raising at that time are almost the exact same that people are raising now about about video games. Can people play games and be social? Are games twisting the moral reasoning of youth? That was a big line a while ago. It's been thankfully delegitimized over time, but these concerns about like the effects media can have, especially on younger people, go back a really, really long time. And we now have like four generations of people growing up with these questions constantly being asked about media. And I, I don't I don't know that that they really, really, really persuade people or if they have some other mechanism for influencing people or what. And and it's it's very, very hard to answer those questions. There there aren't easy answers. A lot of it's very ambiguous and very situational. I know we'll we'll talk about this later in the show, but do you see a difference between like persuading somebody, influencing somebody versus a game kind of explicitly going out and, and kind of poking at the addiction centers because yeah, like, like for me, like a triple A game can be persuasive, but I don't, it doesn't like harbor an addiction sense. Whereas like with candy crush, you hear these kind of like, they might be exaggerated. I don't know, but like people dropping 20, $30,000 to, get advantages in, in mobile games, not just Candy Crush, but kind of top level, do you see, how would you like sort of argue for the persuasiveness versus sort of the addictiveness of certain games? If, you know, yeah. Again, I don't, I don't know that there's a sharper line between them as you're making it out to be. So if, if a game is using kind of, in, in one of the pieces uh, about the, the, the one about data-driven game design, if, if a game is using kind of psychologically manipulative tactics to extract money out of someone, that's still an act of persuasion because most people who encounter those games don't actually succumb to the persuasion to spend tons of money. So I have downloaded free-to-play games and played them. And when they basically time me out, unless I'm willing to pay money in, I'll just wait because ultimately I don't need that one game to keep playing. So so there there is that element of persuasion in the addiction. I, I think there's there's ethical persuasion and then there's non-ethical persuasion or coercion, if you want to put it that way. So there there's there can be an element of coercion in the monetization process. And I think that's more what you're getting at. And that exists in AAA games as much as it does mobile, by the way. Electronic arts in particular is very infamous for using extremely manipulating, manipulative design tactics to extract money out of people for very, very little upside benefit. 
down the line. But in in it also comes down to what you mean the pers- what you intend the persuasion to be for. And this is why I think thinking of it as ethical versus unethical persuasion is a good one. I, I disagree with the persuasion, but the way a lot of military-oriented games end up kind of unintentionally endorsing fascism is an ethical form of persuasion. They're making an argument for a worldview and then constructing a world and establishing rules for that world that you're supposed to navigate. It's a way of teaching you how the world works in their head. There are other efforts to to do like either anti-fascist persuasion, like the the one of the the new Wolfenstein games do that, where in that case the fascists are the enemy, and you're rewarded by going around and killing fascists. So the, those are all different ways that that people express either a worldview or express a mechanic or express a sense of fairness. And looking at say the the here's a good example. Here's a good AAA example that I that I think can demonstrate the the evolution of it. Grand Theft Auto. So Grand Theft Auto V came out, what, 10 years ago? Something like that. Maybe a little less, like eight years ago, early 2010s. It came out initially as a standalone one-player game, exactly what you'd think of a traditional game with with really, really high production values, good voice acting, fun writing, really engaging storyline, all this stuff, all the mayhem that makes GTA a really fun game to play. It transitioned, it had an online element to it, and then has transitioned now into being Grand Theft Auto V Online, which isn't always on. It's something called Game as a Service, or G-A-A-S, or GAS, if you want to call it that, that is based more around, instead of buying the game once and then having access to all these other aspects of the game, it's designed more around what they call microtransactions, which is an effort to get you to spend smaller amounts of money more often to access different elements of the game. A ton of games do this. World of Warcraft does this. EVE Online does this. Final Fantasy XIV does this. It's a, it's a common way of getting a game up and running off the ground. As they're looking at now releasing the sequel to this, Grand Theft Auto VI, there's a worry because of the way the game development has proceeded so far that there will not be an offline single-player game, single-player mode version of the game anymore. That because these online, um, always-on, microtransacted gaming experiences have become so normalized over time that companies sinking, you know, $300 million into building a game aren't going to bother releasing a single artifact that only generates revenue once, and then they're just kind of stuck with it after time. They're probably going to look at ways of creating a permanent income stream out of this new property that comes out. So, okay, all that, all that's fine. That is a persuasive argument that the game is making about what the game experience is, what your expectations for the game should be. So it creates this expectation of there always being new content. It's never going to be the same game twice. You're always going to get support, always going to get updates, always going to have different forms of interaction that you hadn't had the day before. So it ends up creating this shifting set of expectations in the people who encounter the game. I don't know whether those expectations are good or bad. I think people can argue that perfectly validly on either side of the equation. But there's definitely this shift in how people are conceiving of a a large game like that and how that shift is then affecting the way that we encounter it as a medium and as a piece of culture. So I, and that was a very rambling answer I think, to what you were asking, but it, it, it's, I think a good way of trying to frame this as both an economic and a cultural 
argument, if that makes sense. It does. So I'm kind of, I want to switch footing to thinking about video games as public policy and reading through some of the stuff, some of the the write-ups you sent over and then a a couple other write-ups. It it almost seems like video games were in kind of the same space that social media was in 2010, 2011, where it's, it's very obvious the it's exerting an influence on the public, but it hasn't quite reached think tankers or lawmakers, or at least that's my perception. You working in the field, do you feel, A, is it difficult to kind of, for people to take video games, you know, their influence on public policy, their influence on the public seriously, and then B, you know, what have been kind of the challenges in bringing up video games in the realm of public policy discussion? Yeah. So that that's a really, I think, interesting way of looking at it. So it, it's funny you mentioned that it hasn't quite filled it up into think tanks yet. The articles that we're kind of discussing today were all published by Brookings, which is a think tank. And, you know, there, there, there have been efforts to try to raise this on the public agenda before. About seven years ago, yeah, 2014 or so, the Atlantic Council took one of the creators of the Call of Duty franchise video games and basically made him a non-resident senior fellow and tasked him with kind of overseeing this new initiative that they were starting up to understand the relationship between video games and national security. That's, that's I think, its own discussion, because I, I actually have some objections to how they did that and how they were thinking it through, but there, there have been efforts to kind of raise it at that level. But you're right that it, it doesn't really go anywhere. So I think people are at the point now where they're, they're, they understand that video games are there. Anyone who either knows or directly has children under the age of 17, knows that they will spend most of their time, if not playing video games, then watching someone play video games on Twitch or YouTube. And so they they get that this is something that is culturally dominant. And I think a lot of them don't really know what to do with that. So they know that they exist. They know that it's out there. They know that there's a lot of money, but they don't really know where to go from that realization. Like what, what kind of action do you take? What What do you... Do you, do you monitor things more closely the way people try to monitor the, the music and movies and TV their kids watch? When, when it gets older, if someone is really into these like hyper-violent splatter gore games, does that raise the same kind of, you know, questions that you get if someone is really into watching like torture-oriented horror films and they just have like hundreds of them at their house on DVD or something? We don't, we don't yet have the vocabulary to really talk about it in those terms. And from a policy perspective, I see there being a couple of big areas where things are having an effect and and we're just not sure what to do with them. I think the first one is probably in the free speech area. In 2019, during the umbrella protests in Hong Kong, a couple of very famous esports players, esports are professional video game players, in tournament, said things that were supportive of the Hong Kong protesters. Basically that democracy in Hong Kong is a major deal. We need to support the democracy protesters and, and I stand with them. And when one of them, this guy named Blitz Chung, said that on a live stream with Blizzard, who was running a tournament on, it doesn't matter what game it was, but Blizzard, the American company, they're based out of Los Angeles, was hosting this tournament. 
And a player from Taiwan who had won the tournament spoke up in favor of the Hong Kong protesters. What Blizzard did, and I want to repeat again, this is an American company doing this. They forbade him from competing in tournaments for a year, which was a big deal because he made hundreds of thousands of dollars a year playing in video game tournaments. It's, it's income for him. They fined him tens of thousands of dollars. And then they also fired the two video hosts who were interviewing him at the time, even though they hadn't spoken up in favor of the Hong Kong democracy protests. Now, Blizzard, the company, never really acknowledged why they did it, but it was pretty clear that they did this because this big Chinese gaming company called Tencent Holdings owns a pretty big stake in the company. They also happen to be, though I think by now they are the largest video game company in the world, and they help control access to the Chinese esports market for Western video game makers. So Blizzard did not want to get this big Chinese company angry, and they were willing to censor and punish people in order to keep them from getting angry. So that would have been interesting on its own, right? Okay, you know, they're doing this, this happened, I think it happened in Taiwan, maybe South Korea, but so, you know, they're doing this overseas, okay, that's worrying. It did cause a backlash and it caused Blizzard to walk back the punishments and to apologize and to try to make amends. But right after Blitzchung did this, the American University team. So most colleges have esports teams. It's an intramural sport at a lot of colleges. So the American University esports team did the exact same thing. And they spoke up on their game tournament stream in favor of the protests. Also got kicked out of the tournament, also got forbidden from play for a little while. Less meaningful in that case because they're not professionals. It didn't directly affect their income. Like The stakes were a little bit lower. But the moment Blizzard did that, it struck me that this was an American company censoring Americans in the United States to avoid angering, to avoid theoretically even angering a Chinese investor in their company. And to me, the free speech implications of that, considering how much time people, especially younger people, play video games, that strikes me as a profound challenge to a bedrock civilizational value that we have of having the ability to speak up, especially about political issues. And that's still an unresolved question, ultimately, because all of these companies more or less need access to the Chinese market in order to remain competitive, in order to grow, in order to even have access to talent, because China is becoming really dominant in esports itself. So that's not, there's not a, a, a straightforward way to resolve that. Ultimately, the business imperative of how they want to grow their businesses is clashing with the societal and cultural and political and philosophical value of free speech. So I don't know if you have ideas <laughs> about how you can start figuring that out and coming up with an equitable way to balance it, because at the end of the day, especially because Tencent itself has been on a global buying spree the last several years, just buying like, I mean, hundreds of companies over that time, you can't escape their influence. They're, they're gonna have a say at the end of the day. And we don't know how much of that say is valid and how much of it is just completely invalid. We, we don't have, I keep saying this, but we don't have good vocabulary for it yet. And I think part of the reason for that is because we're not used to having speech be so intermediated. And that's maybe where the social media comparison comes into play. This is the nature of Donald Trump's weird lawsuit against Facebook right now, is that Facebook somehow shouldn't have the right to control what people say on its 
servers. That I, I don't think that's consistent with U.S. law, but in this case with Blizzard, sure, it was their servers, but it was their servers overseas where they were making these decisions. And it's because they're not only an American company anymore. They're global. Video games as an industry is transnational in a way that I don't think any other media, including Hollywood, even with how much Hollywood has begun kind of deferring to and trying to include China in a lot of its properties in order to get distribution rights there, even to that extent, it's really halting and really hesitant in a way that with video games from the very beginning, they've been transnational and they've had all kinds of different cultural and political values associated with them. I mean, for the, for most of the 80s, people would play video games through Japanese companies because that's where Nintendo and Sega came from and Namco and, oh gosh, what are the other ones? Like Capcom, right? All of these big names that, that people, I think, our age would, would recognize without even realizing it were all Japanese. So, and, and that got wrapped up in the Japan panic in the 80s. And now there's this other kind of looming issue that, that we just don't, we don't have good answers for right now. So I want to maybe go back and explore this point you made, which is the, the way that I understood it is that we lack a policy vocabulary to mm -hmm. look at video games. Could you maybe expand that for us? Because like for some reason, I was under the assumption that if you have billion dollar companies, right, Blizzard, Tencent, all these, like, my assumption is that they have lobbyists, you know, they have business before the Congress, they, they're trying to influence policy on their own. But, you know, do they, do they also lack a vocabulary? Or is it like, describe how, you know, what does the policy field look like if there is no kind of common vocabulary to describe you know, public policy in this field? Yeah, so so there, there's a lot of vocabulary around public policy that isn't really any different from any other industry. And, and in that case, I think we do have the vocabulary just fine. So the, the video games have their own industry association. It's called the Entertainment Software Association or ESA. They actually spent a lot of energy in like the 90s and early 2000s fighting back against politicians trying to either ban or really heavily regulate video games over violence. And th this was, there, there were, there were, there's always been concerns about the content in video games corrupting, quote unquote, the youth in some way. Probably the, the most visible version of it was right after the 1999 Columbine massacre when people thought that like playing Doom or something had somehow and listening to Marilyn Manson had somehow contributed to those those two kids committing mass murder and at least for a while it was kind of an open question going back to your point about interactivity if that really makes it different if the interactivity of games could make you more susceptible to understanding violence. Within the broader realm of media studies, there's some mixed evidence that exposure to violent content can make someone either more agitated, more prone to lashing out, or to yelling, or to responding, and putting scare quotes around this word, aggressively to some stimuli in a lab, because aggressively doesn't have, aggressive or aggression doesn't have the tightest of definitions, and so researchers can define it with some pretty broad boundaries on it that I'm not sure are really generalizable. That's a separate criticism of that field. But so there, there, was, there was a very successful lobbying effort to defeat 
the policy of cracking down on violence in video games. So essentially the, the moral panic lost, the video game industry won, and apart from a voluntary rating system that the ESA put into place and tries to enforce, again, like quote unquote enforce, there isn't any official government kind of regulation on vulgarity or anything else like that within games. So there, there was that effort to approach it like kind of a normal media property or normal media area that didn't really go anywhere. In terms of business interests, there are absolutely groups, there are company specific ones, and then also the industry level ESA that do similar lobbying at both the state and national level about things like, and th this is where I think the China example becomes interesting about things like access to capital, access to fundraising, or to, to attracting investors, things like that. We, apart from the laws that already govern foreign investments, there's nothing specific to games in that space. They're treated more or less just like in any other industry. I feel like I'm missing part of the question you were asking. In terms of, oh yes, social media. So within social media, we, we have this, this general idea that it's governed by the Communications Decency Act, specifically through Section 230 of the CDA that allows companies to position themselves, internet companies to position themselves as platforms versus publishers. And that as a platform, they're not going to be held directly responsible for content that goes over their servers. And this is how they can evade lawsuits over copyright infringement, as long as they take reasonable, and, and this is also wrapped up with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, as long as they take uh, essentially reasonable effort to keep copyright violations down and otherwise, they don't directly enable illegal conduct. They're not really responsible for what happens on their platforms, but they also have the right to moderate them however they want. I don't think that same argument would necessarily apply to video games. It might, I think, and I really hope I'm not talking out of my ass on this. I think it is an untested area of law about whether a video game hosting a discussion would be subject to Section 230 or not? And I, I, I really don't know the answer to that. But that would be an, an, a way that it's not quite like social media because there's not that clear carve out under the CDA in terms of content and especially in terms of user-generated content. So, you know, again, I keep coming back to this, like, I don't know that we have good policy language to talk about this. If you look at, say, Overwatch, right, that's another Blizzard game, first-person tournament shooter, massively popular. They, if someone says something offensive on there through the voice chat, there's not automatically a written record of it being said. So it would be hard to go back and litigate what someone said. It might be if it got recorded, but you know, we're, we're talking a little theoretically here. It's not clear that Blizzard would be responsible for what someone said. But if someone says that, that offensive or horrible thing to a big enough audience, it could have a real-world impact on people. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know that that kind of a question has been resolved yet. It, it's a big question mark. So thinking of them as public policy, in, in that case, Blizzard is both a platform because it's hosting user-generated content and it's not directly like approving them before it goes out, but it's also a publisher because it's producing the game. It's, it's providing the means for them to talk, the vocabulary, the setting, the context, and they do set rules. So they do have terms of service that say, you can't say X, Y, Z thing on here. 
the way that they punished those players speaking up for the Hong Kong protests, they, they got them under the, the term of service. It says you can't say anything too controversial. And so they decided I'm pro-democracy. It was controversial. I don't know that that's something that would hold up necessarily if it came to a legal challenge. But I also don't know that it's been challenged in any serious way. So again, I, I, it, it's unsatisfying to me too. This is one of the reasons why I'm studying it as part of my PhD research. But we, we just don't have really good policy language to talk about this stuff. In, in the piece, this is a totally different topic, but in, in the piece about data privacy and, and, and hyper-monetization, again, we, we don't have very good language to talk about it. The people try to make comparisons to gambling. They try to make comparisons to like con men running marks and things like that. And I don't think those are good analogies. They, they don't, there's not enough similarities to really say that they should be governed by existing rules and laws we have about that stuff. It's something else. I don't know that I could explain succinctly what that something else is, which is why I'm here rambling, but, but it, it's there. It, it, it's, it's, it, it affects people and it affects them at scale. And we just don't know how to talk about it yet. And I think because we're not able to talk about it using its own terms and because it doesn't have a close enough analogy to these other things that we are used to talking about, when you try to think about the policy implications of it, it becomes really hard to, to, to articulate what it is that you're trying to understand and what it is that you want to do about it. It's kind of interesting that you bring up hyper-monetization because it just, like for video games, I like I, I didn't really think gambling described it very well. And, I, it, and the analogies that I, I started reaching for when reading that article was akin to social media again, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all about attention. It's all about ad tech. It's all about, you know, how long can I keep you on the screen playing, you know, Candy Crush or, you know, whatever mobile game of the week it is. But for the audience, could you walk us through what you, what you mean by hyper monetization? What is, you know, what are the threads involved and and sort of, you know, what is going on in terms of monetizing attention and interactivity with video games? Yeah. So, okay. That's, that's a, that's a good, a good entree to this. So, and, and it might make sense to kind of back up to that social media comparison for a second. Social media works in a lot of ways by essentially manipulating the, oh my God, I'm blanking on the right hormone. I think it's dopamine, the dopamine response in the brain, where by posting something and then receiving engagement on that post, you get a little rush. You get, you get that, that little thrill that then makes you want to create more content that'll get you that same kind of engagement and that same kind of rush. Social media companies, I, I think in a very amoral and immoral way have taken that to kind of its most ludicrous extreme. And, and you can see that especially with Facebook's own internal studies that they've tried since to suppress that show that they know that extreme content and extreme behavior results in greater engagement, which drives their ad engine, which is part of the reason why they don't take really concrete efforts to tamp down on that on their service. So there, there's there's through a lot of trial and error and experimentation, th- those companies have figured out how to essentially hack the brain to make you hungry for engagement on their platforms. Games have done that too. They, through a much, much longer time frame. again, the first video game was invented, I want to say 1968. It was kind of a version of uh, Space Invaders. 
Oh man, what or, or I'm that that's not the right one. It, it was a little spaceship zooming around on a radar screen, shooting little pew pew dots out at at blocks. But so th- that was the very first video game that came up, and and it was neat, hard to play, but a cool concept. But so we've had like 50 years now, over 50, 60 years. We've had 60 years now almost of people figuring out what elements of design work and what elements of design don't work for keeping people engaged, making someone want to commit, say, 40, 50 hours of their life to playing through a story. And now that element of engagement, which has been, I think, very well established, we know what makes games fun, has been taken to then see, well, what can we do to make games make money? This is where my co-author, Joseph Jerome, and I came up with the idea of hypermonetization, which we define as an effort to use manipulative design practices, surveillance, invasive kind of privacy measures to get an inside look into what would convince someone to want to spend money on a game, and then to redesign all the aspects of the game around those elements to maximize the amount of money that a person would sink into the game. So at a, at a very, very high level, that's how I would describe it, is it's using very invasive surveillance and manipulative design elements to convince someone to spend more money in a game than they ordinarily would be willing to. And I, I, wanna, I, I, I tried, may not have done a good enough way of doing it, but I, I would want to distinguish that from just kind of regular monetization. Just like with persuasion, there's ethical and unethical persuasion. I think there's ethical monetization and there's unethical monetization. So the way Fortnite works, as an example, it's a heavily microtransaction monetized game as a service. But the way that it monetizes things is by basically making everything, I don't want to say superficial, but it makes it very appearance oriented. So if you ever want to change your character's appearance, you have to pay for it. But if you don't change your character's appearance, you can get the full experience of the game. They, they, they didn't manipulate the kind of core mechanic and the core gameplay experience to restrict it only to people who pay extra into it. They instead allowed the money to be this other way that they can generate, that they can enable like player expression. I think that's probably an ethical way to monetize a game. When you look at how, in contrast, FIFA soccer, the, 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 the soccer franchise that Electronic Arts puts out, the way that FIFA monetizes it, they actually interfere with the core mechanic of the game. So you can't get good players unless you pay for them, which means that you can't compete in the online version of the game unless you buy into it. So they created this monetary barrier to accessing core elements of the game. Because of that, and because of the way that they employ a bunch of other tricks along the way, like a a separate in-game currency, lots of tiny little microtransactions along the way that a player doesn't notice when they only look at a a single top line. I think an equivalent to that is the way in the US, we don't factor in taxes to the purchase price of something. So we kind of know that when we buy something, we're not actually buying it for its sticker price, but we don't always know what that final price is going to be. EA took that to an extreme with with the way that they handle you know fees and microtransactions and all that. So I think that's an unethical way of monetizing games where you're still using those same kind of surveillance techniques to research users and research players, what they want, what they respond to, what they're interested in. 
but then they lock away core elements of what those players want. Having already spent, you know, 60 plus dollars to get the game itself, they then lock the core gameplay away unless you pay even more into it. And so when it gets to that level where, where you get trapped in this loop where you want to keep competing because you enjoy playing the game that you already purchased, but the basic elements of that gameplay, you have to spend additional money to get into, and it's essentially never ending. That becomes that hyper monetization. It's taken to an extreme and it becomes unethical in practice. And this is all before you even factor in like ad tech or a relationship between the company and advertisers. Absolutely. And and that's obviously a part of it because a lot of these games now are also starting to have ads and Facebook just very famously did an experiment of seeing how they could start placing ads in virtual reality games as well. So that ends up creating, and luckily the initial reaction to it were so negative that they've tabled it for now, but that ends up, especially when you add it to Facebook's already extremely invasive surveillance practices, if you're wearing a VR headset, you literally can't turn away from the ad at that point. It becomes almost non-consensual. So there, there are some pretty profound, I think, questions behind this, as, this effort to hyper-monetize that, you know, again, like, like we, we came up with that term because we couldn't think of any other word for it because I keep coming back to this as a theme. I didn't realize it, that we don't have good policy language. You, you know, you can kind of do the exegesis of the, of, of the term. Sorry, I'm mispronouncing words left and right. It's because I read and don't talk. But you, you can kind of do that and say, okay, hyper and monetize, right? It's taken to an extreme. But we don't know what the extreme is, we, right? Like, like it, it's a spectrum. We know that at the extreme, it's extreme. But what about halfway? Is it a logarithmic scale that just gets more extreme the further you go with, with ever-increasing increments between units? Is it steady? Is it incremented? Are there certain things that 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 jump something into being hyper versus just legitimate monetization? Like, I don't know the answers to that. I don't know that a lot of people know the answers to that. What I do know is that the leading companies of this $160 billion industry would prefer there to be no limits on it. And, and they would prefer to do this exactly up to the edge that players end up revolting and they end up overall losing revenue. That's not a place that's set in stone. And that is a place where already people have been essentially scammed out of money and put into financial straits because of it. So the status quo, I don't think is sustainable in the long run, but I also don't know how far back that needs to be pulled for it to achieve the right balance. So something that kind of popped out at me was the idea of data privacy when it comes to video games, because Mm -hmm. the monetization stuff, the ad tech stuff was kind of not obvious, but you kind of assume it's there. And there's just other elements of privacy that I didn't think about when it comes to video games, like attention or interactivity or, you know, the, you know, everything you do in a game is potentially sent up back to the developer and the developer might use it for, you know, legitimate analytics, you know, to gauge difficulty, you know, up or down, or in some cases, you know, box it up and send it to a, to an advertiser. So walk us through like, what are some of the unique challenges that video games can produce when it comes to 
data privacy and privacy in general? Yeah. So the probably the most important one right off the bat is just financial privacy. So especially as games are increasingly digitized, right? Like, and it sounds weird to talk about them that way, but even though they were played in a digital medium, games were not, I would describe them as like fully digitized until fairly recently when you could download games in large numbers and play them without having to have a physical medium that you would like put into a PlayStation or pop a CD into your PC. So as games have become increasingly digitized, and as they have especially transitioned into the mobile space and gained access to lots of sensor data, there, there's always been at the root of it, this financial aspect of it. So if, you're, if you subscribe to anything, they have your credit card information. They keep it on file, they have to. If you buy anything from a game, they have your credit card information, your mailing address, your physical location, and they, they just, they have to store that, right? There have been a lot of breaches at that level of just broad financial data. And we have good language for that because tons of companies, right? There was that huge target hack a couple of years ago. The, was it Experian? I think the credit reporting agency that also got, got massively compromised. Amazon many years ago got compromised. Tons of credit card data went out into the wild. We have language for talking about that. And I, because of that, I don't think that's, that's a terribly interesting part of the discussion, but it's worth at least acknowledging that at, at a basic level, there is that financial element of just millions of credit card numbers and mailing addresses sitting in a vault somewhere at a company, a computer vault, a, a computer folder somewhere that needs to be protected. And there aren't great laws demanding a certain level of protection. I think we, right now, we just kind of hope that people won't get too angry if there's a breach, but that aspect's there. Where things get really interesting was in the development of game achievements. And this was something that Microsoft innovated in the Xbox 360, God, 15 years ago now? Yeah, I think it was about 15 years ago. When you get a badge while playing a game, that's for accomplishing something. You can get it for being a really good shot in a first-person shooter. So it, playing, I think at the time, Halo 2, if you got a certain number of headshots in a row, so that's shooting someone in the head with a gun, you would get rewarded for that. So they would call you a marksman, and then you would have that little marksman badge. If you completed a certain level in a certain amount of time, they would give you a badge for that. And these were very effective ways, I think, of getting people engaged, getting them to want to brag about their badges and show off their progress. But what it represented underneath was the fact that the game was actually cataloging every single thing that you did. And then it was giving you a reward for it, but we didn't totally know what else it was going for. And it's not clear what else that data goes for. So consoles, we have that element of it where things like your reaction time can be measured. I don't know how many games do that, but it's something you can measure. If you're playing a role-playing game, an RPG, your dialogue choices could say a lot about how you think about things, even though you might be in character, you might be doing what you think the character should do in context, and that isn't necessarily what you really believe. Just like in psychological tests, where there's an assumption that you're aware it's a test and trying to game it and they try to account for that, you can do the same thing with the way those choices play out. When you start assembling psychological profiles of certain elements of game design that make you likely to consider spending money in a game. That's where it starts bouncing up against hyper-monetization. In EA's case, this was part of the lawsuit about how they had monetized their FIFA games. 
they had filed a patent and wrote an academic article, a peer-reviewed research article about how they were using game design to create dynamic difficulty. So the game could analyze how you play and then make the game more difficult for you compared to someone who's less skilled at playing the game. And then they ended up proving that they weren't doing this in FIFA. So that wasn't part of what was going on in the hypermonetization. But the potential is there for game companies now using that technology to dynamically make a game harder and force you to pay money to make it easier. So th this, this loops back around into the kind of manipulative game elements. In the mobile space, anything that you're running on your phone has access to cameras and GPS data. It can look at the tilt of the phone to see if you tend to play it while sitting up or lying down, which can tell, you, tell them whether you tend to play it during the day or when you're in bed. They can access your location when you're playing it. Games like Pokemon Go have that built in so that you have to give them your location in order to play the game, which means that Niantic, the developer of Pokemon Go, has really detailed travel patterns of millions of people who have played their games. I don't know what they're going to do with that. They say that they won't sell it to third-party advertisers. They might someday. They can revoke their terms of service whenever they feel like it, and people can't really do anything because they willingly signed over their data. So those those kinds of privacy things do give me some pause because it's it's new. We're not used to people having, first of all, that much data available about themselves, but then also having it available to other companies that could monetize it in some way. You mentioned earlier ad tech. Some companies like Apple give you kind of phone level control, at least some limited control over how much location tracking can be used to help target ads. Not all phone makers do that, especially in the Android space. Android's something like 60 to 70% of the world phone market. So most people with phones don't really have a fundamental assumption of privacy when they encounter these games. We don't really know what uses someone's aesthetics when they pick a Fortnite outfit, what that might be used for, for advertising later. We, we just don't know. And one of the reasons we don't know is because there's no requirement for game makers to tell people these things. It's either considered to be a trade secret, so they can they can legally conceal it, or it's just in a space, a, a regulatory gap, a, a space where our politics and our policies haven't yet caught up to it. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying all of this, and I don't want it to sound dire, because I don't think it's unsolvable, and I don't think it's necessarily evil. A lot of developers just collect it because they don't know what they want to do with it later. And, and there isn't some kind of specific like malicious or manipulative intent behind it. They just happen to have access to that data and they know that other data in the past has proved really useful. And most of them, I'd say probably the vast majority of them collect it for just internal research to design better games, which again is fine, but there's those edge cases that aren't fine. And I don't know where those edge cases are. And I don't know what should be done about them not being fine because and, and this is one of the things we struggled with in our piece, even when we, when we were writing about how this data-driven game design could possibly be regulated. It, it requires understanding intent, and it's hard to gauge intent just from design. And, and that creates a really difficult challenge. We, we, we're not good at regulating that kind of stuff. And I think because we're not good at it, the default has been to just do no regulation of it at all. And in that free-for-all, it, it gives space for either malicious or unethical people to then move in 
and use some of these techniques to trick people into doing things and into spending money that they ordinarily wouldn't. So in that sense, what do you see, if any, like as a framework in approaching regulating video games? I think in, in the article you mentioned the, I'm going to get the, the letters wrong, GDPR, the, mm-hmm. the law in, in the EU. I mean, where do you, when creating a framework or proposing a framework, where, where do you even start, you know, yeah. when it comes to, you know, regulating video games, e- even if regulation is, you know, might not even be the correct way to do it. Like, where do you, where's that framework begin? Yeah, so GDPR is the general data protection requirement. It's an EU level law that mandates that companies that exist on computers, basically. I'm summarizing it and lawyers will get angry at me and and that's fine. But basically it mandates that companies have to be more transparent about the kinds of data they collect about people through the internet. And that if someone wants to know what a company has collected about them, they have the right to that information. And if they are within the EU, they also have the right to have that information deleted. And some people call that a right to be forgotten or the right to deletion or the right to, things like, there are a bunch of different ways that people approach that. So that's the GDPR. It is not perfect. It has not done a very good job of doing its stated purpose. Part of it is because it requires a certain amount of opting in by consumers, by people. When you require opting in to establishing privacy, people tend not to because it's effort. And whenever you require effort to do something, fewer people will do it than if it's just there by default. It's also broadly written enough so that companies don't really need to be proactive. They can be mostly reactive to consumer complaints. There's an effort in California called the California Consumer Privacy Act that is trying to incorporate some of those ideas into a state level law. It's been the subject of very, very fierce lobbying from both the internet and video game industries. And ultimately those systems all, because they're reactive, they're not proactive, they require a regulatory agency to enforce them. And in the EU, the authorities have been pretty lax in enforcing it. And the process that people have to go through to request their data under the GDPR is actually pretty complicated. And because it's complicated, people tend to just not do it. When we think about what that could do in games, again, it really comes down to kind of intent. And, and that makes it difficult. We, we, we talk in that piece about incorporating something called privacy by design, which would require a lot of that data to be private unless people explicitly opt into it, there are major weaknesses in that approach because most people will just opt in without even thinking about it, the same way that they opt into Facebook data collection without even thinking about it. Because we don't have this default expectation that our data is going to be private. Um, And I I think, you know, there was something really interesting that, that Kamala Harris did back when she was California's attorney general. She, she talked about how companies should try to do what she called surprise minimization, which meant that you wouldn't run into that gameplay loop where you suddenly find the game being harder than it's supposed to be because it's been adjusting its difficulty the whole time. And then all of a sudden, in order to proceed, you have to pay money to dial back the difficulty rating. That would be a a kind of a malicious surprise to put into a game where it gets someone emotionally and psychologically invested in the outcome of the game and then immediately hits you with a pay gate 
if you want to resolve that manipulation. A couple of years ago, there was a Harry Potter game that did this, I think, in a particularly horrible way. It, it, was, it was very clearly targeted at young people. So people who, you know, say under 16, who would be super, super into Harry Potter, and it places you in the position of the, the protagonist who's like 15 years old at Hogwarts. And pretty early on in the game, there's a scene where your character, the protagonist, whose thought process and well-being you take on while playing this game, is getting strangled by a villain. And during that strangling, you have to either wait a period of time to continue playing the game. I think it was 24 to 48 hours to continue playing the game. Or you could pay an extra $30 to allow your character to stop getting strangled to death in front of you and then to continue playing. Again, this was targeted at kids. That's the kind of surprise minimization that I think would be difficult to define and then therefore enacting regulations but is nevertheless really, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to curse, but it's it's really screwed up to do that, especially in a game targeted at kids. So, you know, the, the, the challenge with regulating design is that because design is not really a science, we don't know where all the boundaries are. And so far, it's been a process of trial and error to figure out what works and what doesn't and when costs are too much and when costs are just right. The UK is trying to put something into place right now with that. They call it the age appropriate design code, which, but again, it, it comes down to an intent issue where it, it wants game makers to put the best interests of children first when they're designing games and apps and stuff for kids. Putting a child's interest first, I, I don't totally know what that means or what its boundaries are. It's a good positioning statement. It's a good value statement. But in terms of actually delineating it, especially in a legal process, especially one established in courts, I don't, I don't know where, where that goes or where it begins. Here's another way of thinking about it. So there's been a lot of talk lately about dark patterns or dark design which is an effort to attach a term to really manipulative design elements, like intentionally deceptive. The FTC just did a workshop about that a month or two ago, but that also highlighted how hard it is to police dark patterns or dark design, because when do you know that something is being intentionally manipulative, right? Like when you play Candy Crush, everyone knows that in the course of playing Candy Crush, if you want to keep playing, you have to put money in or you have to put it down for the rest of the day. We all know that it still manages to somehow trap people into spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on the game, but it's done out in the open and it's done pretty explicitly. Is that, is that intentionally deceptive? I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's manipulative for sure, but it's explicitly manipulative. They, they say very clearly that this is the trade that you make. And this is something that happens in a lot of, especially free to play games. It's built into the free to play model. So you know, it, it, to me, it's just, it, it's, un, it's unclear how, how we can talk about that. I do think there needs to be a role for public input. And that's something that usually doesn't happen when people think about regulations or think about even laws that might govern some of this. The, one of the a previous iteration of the California data privacy bill was essentially neutered after social media lobbyists went into Sacramento and twisted a bunch of arms of legislators. 
so there, there's always that danger of regulate. They call that regulatory capture when basically an industry ends up controlling the way the government regulates it. So having more public input is important to that. But also that, that's where, where gamer culture becomes its own thing, where people who identify as gamers can often adopt this very aggressive defensive crouch about any effort to like restrict their games. And it can easily backfire if you have almost too much public input. And again, I don't, I don't know where the right balance is between all of that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all, I, I think because it's pretty new, we haven't had really the ability to do this with people for longer. I don't think it's even been 10 years. It's maybe 10 years that people have been doing. Whenever, whenever Zingo released, oh, what was the farm game on Facebook? My, my brain has gone completely blank. Do you remember what the name of that game was? I think it's Farmville. Yeah, Farmville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back when, when Zynga released Farmville, right? That, that was only 10 years ago. We, we think of it as being in the ancient history, but in terms of laws governing like industries, 10 years is not a very long time. So we, we've, we've only had this around for a very short period of time. And I think because of that, we, we, there's just this struggle to figure out exactly what the definitions of things are and exactly what the boundaries are. But we kind of know what's too extreme, but just, you know, like with, with defining pornography, it can, get, it can get really, really difficult the moment you get away from the most extreme and explicit examples to start setting boundaries and limits. So that's a, that's a lot, but... We, we've kind of come to the end of the show and as per tradition, leave us with, with something to think about, something to chew on, something that, you know, we can listen to the show and then continue thinking about video games and its place in public policy. Yeah. So how about I do that by talking about what my current research is on about, right? Because what else do people love hearing from grad students? So I am in the course of doing a series of studies specifically about how the U.S. military, the Pentagon, is interacting with the video game industry. This is how I'm linking the various threads of my life together, my former national security life and my current one doing academic research into video games. So the Pentagon has loaned advisors to video game companies to help them design first-person shooter games, and they now operate several professional esports teams that compete in tournaments in an effort to get people interested in enlisting in the armed forces. While we're thinking about the various privacy implications of this, of, of the industry, invasive data practices, manipulative design, I'm interested, and I hope people listening to this also develop an interest in what it means when the U.S. military becomes a player in this space, and then also when other militaries start to become a player in their own spaces. I know in Russia, there's an increasing amount of government involvement in games as an instrument of state power. In China, this is the same way. They recently declared science fiction itself as a genre to be an important part of China's soft power on the world stage. So as governments increasingly get involved in using games as a persuasive medium, what does that mean? Where does that take us? What are the red lines they shouldn't cross? What's fine but worrying and something you should just be aware of? Where would you stand on all of that? So that's what I hope people can think about as they move forward and, and want to move beyond just, you know, whether 
whether Ubisoft has the right to trick you into paying money to get a new cloak in Assassin's Creed or something. There can actually be some much deeper and I think more profound questions about the way that these games interact with us in a social sense, but then also can be affected and influenced by governments themselves to have outcomes that we maybe didn't think of and don't like. So with that, I wanted to thank my guest today, Joshua Faust. We're going to post the two articles that he's written and co-authored, Video Games are the New Contested Space for Public Policy, and A Guide to Reigning in Data-Driven Video Game Design. As always, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Of course.